Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the never-ending Partygate saga, Joe Biden's accidental warmongering, the demise of the Ministry of Truth and racist babies. So this was the week the media certainly have been waiting for. I don't know if you were looking forward to Sue Gray Day, uh, the publication of the civil servants report into the prime minister and various sort of Downing Street rule breaking parties. I mean, Tom, this saga has been going on for so long now. Have we really learned anything new this week? Not really. No. I mean, the report itself was really just a kind of repackaging of things that we'd already found out via the media, obviously mm. partly through the Met investigation and who got fined for what, uh, a few extra details, which we might get into. But, you know, we've known the bones of this story for best part of six months now. Yeah. Most people have made their mind up about it. Um, and to the extent that it was a revealing week, it was only revealing as far as how obsessed the media were with it. It was bizarre. I mean, it was actually quite entertaining in how bizarre it was. There was all of this build up. In the days before, you had a BBC Panorama investigation talking to former Number 10 staffers, their faces and voices obscured like they're in witness protection or something, you know, <laughs> piously intoning about these parties that they gladly went to a year ago. Um, Sam Coates from Sky News, you know, setting up outside Downing Street and shouting moralistic <laughs> questions at cabinet ministers. Are asking, you ashamed or yeah, are, are, are you, you proud? proud? This government, Sajid Javid and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> There was a kind of fever pitch and then it landed and, you know, switched on Sky News again and they were essentially reading it out loud, having just received it. The mm. desperation for this wall-to-wall coverage was immense. Um, and whilst, and it, given the context in which this is coming, you know, given the cost of living crisis, given war in Europe, uh, this, these aren't deflections. It looks absurd, the amount of focus that this has been given. I, the reason I think it's worth talking about is because of how revealing it is about the media, um, the myopia, the obsession with the covid rules i think is part of this you know they're, yeah. they're kind of quite locked down fanatic type people and it actually does morally offend them that anyone might have bent or <laughs> broke these rules to a certain degree um and also quite that ongoing mania that's gripped them since 2016 which because that was such a defeat because it really kind of scrambled their brain cells to such a degree they've taken on this view that boris johnson is uniquely evil dangerous needs to be opposed at all costs and so any opportunity like this is pursued in a genuinely almost unthinking campaigning mode yeah um and so and the, the upshot of all of that is that we're, we've spent at least another 24 48 hours talking about parties that we've known about for the best part of a year um but i think it was yes yeah, very revealing about the media certainly not really revealing about boris johnson the facts of which in terms of these parties we've known for a long time now there is, this, there is this kind of tendency that you're sort of pointing to to think that uh, Boris is the worst prime minister ever, the most evil prime minister ever, the only prime minister who's ever lied, the only prime minister who's ever done anything bad. I mean, Robert Peston being the archetypal mm. example of this, you know, tweeting about the Sue Gray report, talking about it being the most sort of damning inquiry into government malfeasance ever, forgetting that, you know, the Chilcot report 
you know, came out in living memory talking about a, a government which essentially, or a government action that killed like two million people. I mean, I mean, the Afghanistan th- withdrawal report came out what the day before the Sukhoi yeah. report. You know, again reminding people of the horrendous failures there, and you know, pen farthings, Alsatians getting to have their own plane because mm. of again decisions made seemingly from within Number Ten, but apparently that doesn't <laughs> register what's all. No, that's had. I no media mm. attention. I None mean, re- it's really remarkable yeah. the silence around the Afghanistan withdrawal report just because, you know, and people say, well, we sort of knew all that mm. anyway. And, um, you know, th- that's too difficult to talk about. But what is salacious and easy to talk about and easy to point the finger about is Partygate. And it just really shows the sort of the depravity of priorities in um, British media. You know, the Sue Gray report in and of itself, Tom is, is absolutely right, did not tell us anything we didn't know. And there's been this kind of ridiculous um, sort of postponement, both from the media side, but also from Boris Johnson and cabinet saying, we have to wait to see what the Met says. We have to wait to see what Sue Gray says. We have to wait. We have to wait. And it's like, everybody knows yeah. that you were having a good time and that you were, you know, puking on carpets and you were, you know, having wine time Friday at four o'clock or whatever it was. Breaking the and- child's swing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what monster and- would break a child's swing? And, you know, there's, uh, you know, again, this is, it's not too kind of, I don't, I don't think it'd be beneficial if we came out of this in this sort of cynical way and said, oh, you know, politicians behave badly, whatever, even though I'm tempted to feel like that. But you do have to remind yourself, you know, like things like the series, The Thick of It, were created, you know, partly on, based on not all fiction, but on fact, the fact that, you know, within the inner workings of government, a lot of unsavory stuff does happen. Um, and you have to kind of get back to the very simple basics of this, which is that we have a current media discussion, political discussion within the media that is questioning whether or not a prime minister and senior members of cabinet or you know, important civil servants should leave because they had a drink or had drink one drink too many at a specific time, rather than questioning the actual, and I know we've said this till we're blue in the face, but the actual policy that those that, that government at that time put in place. And so you really want to ask people, what is what is the upshot of all of this? What would be the best outcome for you if Boris Johnson left because he was pictured holding up a drink surrounded by wine bottles or because the reason why it was so bad that he was doing it was because he implemented mm. as prime minister of this country such the kind of policy that stopped people from seeing their dying mothers, stopped kids from going to school, blah, blah, blah. And it just, I think if you point out that, it reveals the superficiality of all of this because, you know, the Sam Coates and the other journalists who are now, you know, so incredibly confident in their vocal disavowal of the government, it's too little too late because at the time when you asking, are you ashamed? Are you proud of your decisions? Would have been a year and a half ago, you know, yeah. you know two, during the two years of the pandemic when some kind of opposition would have actually made a difference. And it's funny, the photos came out this week and, and a lot of people want to see in them this kind of raucous, debauched behaviour, but actually they're quite austere. You know, the, the, the picture of the Prime Minister next to Rishi mm. Sunak, you know, they look bored, you know, holding a small can of probably warm Australia. And <laughs> it just reminds you of how dispiriting that that time was, that mm. even something, you know, as a kind of non-event like that could be against the rules. No, exactly. And I think those pictures would, to the degree that they might help a bit, they probably would insofar as um, just showing that, again, they're kind of swinging from the chandeliers image that was conjured up (laughs) was very far away from the truth. And the thing is, you know, a a lot of this is, you know, there were more egregious examples. There's no point breaking down all of them. The fact that we feel compelled to is part of the problem, probably. Um, But some of them were just, you know, people who work side by side all day together, introducing some alcohol at the end of it to 
you know, cheers someone who's leaving, really. And to suggest that one is a terrifying super spreader event whilst the other one is fine is ultimately ridiculous. The problem, of course, being that that's what the rules set out. I mean, you yeah. remember all of the things around Christmas 2020 saying, you know, even if you all are out to work side by side, you can't have a Christmas party. It's absurd yeah. when you think about it. You know, you spend all of your days together. But as Ella was saying, all of the function, all of the focus rather is on, again, not the rules themselves, but the handful of times in which the Prime Minister may or may not have broken them. Um, I've got to say that the, the piety that's coming out from a lot of these people is really too much to bear. First of all, because they're talking ultimately about parties and you know were you having a scotch egg or not all this sort of stuff just is in and of itself quite banal feeling and obviously people were very infuriated at the time mm. it already has done huge damage to the conservative party and to boris johnson rightly so but at the same time there's all sorts of things people were angry about six months ago there's bigger issues at play but to see all of this kind of pearl clutching and talk about standards in public life and matters of principle democracy even the idea that it's a democratic outrage that we it's even possible to have a prime minister as sinister and as an unhinged as this particular one unchecked by any sense of decency coming from the people who tried to overturn brexit it's really quite shameful yeah actually and i think a lot of the the attempt to deal with boris johnson as if he's like a moral problem in that sense and, and so it can be a kind of bigger scandal like the prorogation of parliament or it can be these kind of smaller scandals around parties or whatever um really brings that to the fore that they think that they're the moral ones they think they're kind of holding the government to some sort of justified position and yet the sorts of positions they were taking in recent times would have done far more to destroy trust in politics if particularly if they'd have had their way yeah so to see it coming from those sort of people even to the extent of trying to stand up for the little guy in relation to the cleaners who apparently got short shrift from these number 10 staffers um it you know it's sick making to put it lightly <laughs> I mean, Keir Starmer seems to be the archetypal example of this, um, you know, not only um, someone who tried to overturn the Brexit referendum, but has also been caught out with his own mini party gate and beer mm -hmm. gate scandal. So, you know, who is anyone kidding when they're saying that they're the righteous one? It's also the case that lots of these channels that journalists are now um, being incredibly pious um, on, as Tom says, also had their own scandals. I won't name names, but you know, yeah. some Sky quite, News, some Beth quite, Rigby. Beth Rigby, yeah. okay, there we go. Kay Burley. Kay Burley. <laughs> quite significant, um, you know, the, the, they're being sort of significantly or studiously quiet at the moment because yeah. it would be a bit rich for Beth Rigby to get up and point the finger right now. But there was, you know, the, uh, the other thing is there's uh, there's kind of a, a, a sort of, but a lot of bad faith around at the moment because it we know that on the one hand, lots of people at the really significant times in the pandemic when things were really scary did go, um, you know, followed the rules and did what they needed to do. And we know that, for example, when the vaccine came around, loads. the reason why loads of people took that up was because people took it seriously. Um, but it was also the case that not everybody went around in this kind of blind following of government rules saying, I will absolutely not go and, you know, deliver the groceries to my grandmother because Boris Johnson says I can't. Mm. People bent and shaped the rules as they saw fit in a sensible way. And so for, you know, Keir Starmer, for example, to make the case of saying what I was doing was sort of sensible. I was just having work. I was, I was at a work event 10 o'clock at night. We then stopped and we had a relaxing beer and some curry or whatever it was. That is what most people did. And you could argue, I mean, the people within civil servants, within number 10, some of them even who have been fined, have argued that that is what they also were doing. Hmm. So the most sensible thing at this point would be to say, 
practically let's have an amnesty for everyone who was fined thousands and thousands of pounds in some cases. And second of all, can we all agree that this was a, just a bizarre moment in British history and a kind of complete you know, government and politicians and journalists losing their nut over what turned out to be in the latter part of the pandemic, total fear mongering and promise to never do it again. Because that's the thing that's missing from all of this, mm. which is that, you know, the outcome would be what Boris Johnson goes, civil servants get slapped on the wrist, maybe even Keir Starmer goes. But there has been no commitment from general, um, from politics in general and from politicians, both within the Conservative and Labour Party to say, this was a mistake. We're not going to do lockdown. They keep dangling lockdown as a potential, whether it's for monkeypox or whatever else is on the horizon. <laughs> and that's the real dodgy thing. How Woke Won, the brilliant new book by Joanna Williams, is out now. It's all about the woke takeover of our institutions and how we, the public, can fight back. You can order your copy today by going to spiked-online.com forward slash shop. That's spiked-online.com forward slash shop. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. So let's move on to talk about Joe Biden. The U.S. president accidentally seems to have overturned decades of U.S. foreign policy towards China. It, it can happen to all of us uh, by essentially committing the U.S. to defending Taiwan um, in the event of a Chinese invasion. Now, it's been walked back, as often happens, but this is really significant, Tom, isn't it? This is it is, and yet we're constantly invited to just brush it to one side. So this isn't the first time this has happened. As you say, he was in um, Japan. He just kind of, I think the exact words were, that is the commitment we have made in response mm. to a question about would um, America intervene militarily? And I think the question was essentially, by intervene militarily, I don't mean, you know, arm Taiwan, but which I believe they're already doing, but um, actually get involved. Yeah. And he said, yes, this was the commitment we made. Um, as you say, instantly walked back. Uh, there's a pattern of behaviour here, I think it's fair to say, um, in relation to Ukraine. Obviously, there was that, again, walked back comment at the end of March in Poland, where Biden said that he cannot stay in power, seeming to refer to Putin and committing the American government seemingly to regime change at the end of his speech. Other comments on that trip where he seemed to be addressing American soldiers saying, you'll see it when you get there, that <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Ukrainians are X, Y, Z. And it's a really interesting contrast between a lot of the discussion around Trump and his often quite undiplomatic and uh, quite incendiary comments, and with Biden, with Biden, there's this go, oh, that's just him, isn't it? Yeah, that's not what this is not the standard you should be able to expect from a world leader. You know, essentially, kind of stoking up World War Three just because it felt emotionally resonant at the time in order <laughs> to do so is ridiculous. There was even one I saw one bit of analysis on the BBC which referred to it as Joe Biden will continue to speak his truth. <laughs> this, oh, and especially when you contrast that with when. And again, this wasn't positive in any respect, but you had Trump running around, you know, threatening fire and fury on North Korea. Mm. Again, an incredibly incendiary thing to do. But at the same time, that was that was the response to that was, oh, my God, he's going to barrel us into nuclear war. Whereas yeah. in this situation where tensions are far higher globally and you're dealing with China, a global superpower, rather than North Korea, this kind of bizarre style in this hermit kingdom. Um Again, those people are completely silent. So the double standards are very, very striking. But it's just, it's this is a this is a really there's a lot of talk, obviously, about Joe Biden being unbalanced and a bit past it and all the rest of it. 
um, and there's often something a bit uncharitable about that. But this stuff really does matter. And to see people just blithely dismiss it is yeah. remarkable, definitely. I mean, it, it, it's almost like he, he's not the leader of the free world, but it's just a sort of opinion columnist and sort of puts <laughs> these ideas out there. You know, maybe we should defend Taiwan. Maybe, maybe the classic one as well in relation to Ukraine was, oh, well, you know, if it's a minor incursion, we'll have a different response, seemingly referring to how the US might respond if, if Russia, you know, doesn't mount a full invasion on Kiev. That Many people took that as an invitation to mm. invade. He just sort of offers these views and then says, sorry, I, I got carried away. Mm. And, you know, the, the adults in the room, so to speak, have to walk it back and reiterate the, the official line. But I mean, that's untenable as a world leader, surely. It is untenable, but I think it reveals the sort of truth that everybody knew when Biden was elected, which is that he was always going to be something of a kind of a figurehead. Yeah. Whether or not that was sort of, no one actually, obviously within the Democrats were, were open about that. But there was this general sense that either the uncharitable stuff that you know Tom mentioned, that he is at times does seem to be genuinely just not with it, whether mm. that's down to age or illness or something. You know, Sleepy Joe Biden became a, a nick, the cruel nickname for a reason. Um, but also because he, you know, despite the fact that he has quite a, obviously a long history within um, American politics, that his uh, his that history doesn't really quite fit in with the kind of modern sensibilities. There was always this kind of tension around if he can just sort of, we can just keep him on his subject yeah. and keep him sort of quiet. And so when he kind of is set loose on something very serious like geopolitics and you know international diplomacy at a time of where there is war in the world, um, they sort of, they're, it's like two entities are acting differently. There's Joe Biden, the individual who's mm. like, you know, see his face on a stamp. And then there's um, his aides and his spads and the people below him who are then basically constantly contradicting what he's saying. Um, and, and as Tom says, trying to pretend like they're not contradicting it. They're just sort of clarifying it when, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> they are quite literally saying, no, he didn't mean to say that. But the, the, the you know, the comparison with Trump is an interesting one. And people have pointed out that, when Trump said, you know, things like, oh, you know, these places are shithole countries and, yeah. and criticized places in a very undiplomatic way. It's not to say he was talking about shithole countries, but he was talking about countries that weren't as powerful as China or weren't as, you know, didn't pose the same kind of threat. And the thing that uh, Trump always did throughout his um, presidency was try to gain some kind of uh, domestic legitimacy and domestic support from, you know, talking about China mm. in this kind of very disparaging way, but, you know, never quite going too far, but, you know, doing a kind of macho display with that. And actually, I think Biden is doing a very similar thing. James Woodhousen wrote an article for Spike back in 2021 Um really explaining how so much of America's policy of ambiguity and also the way in which Biden's now currently sort of, I think not unconsciously, quite consciously flirting with um, the potential of changing that or alluding to a change in that is to, is not about, as James puts it, anything to do with the well-being of the Taiwanese people or Taiwanese sovereignty or any kind of significant care for that. But it's about what that kind of message says back home to Americans. And in that way, Trump and Biden are very, very similar. <laughs> and um, just on the on the question of sort of um, Joe Biden, it, you know himself, it, it's funny how he has struggled to kind of relay the foreign policy message mm. of the people behind him of, of of the of the establishment. But he has taken like a duck to water to the modern woke message, which is bizarre if you think about it. When you know, given for such an elderly man, no, completely. 
And it's one of the things that I think is one of the more striking developments of his particular presidency, which is that there were also a lot of kind of anti-woke liberals, if you can call them that, who said that the 2020 election is a straightforward choice. Trump inflames the cultural war. Joe Biden, he's old. He doesn't really believe in this stuff. Mm. He's kind of a centrist. You know, he won't. It's, he's a kind of solid choice. He'll calm everything down. But from very early on, he's kind of outsourced that to element to other elements of the Democratic Party, and just generally speaking, kind of got on board with it um, across all kinds of different areas. Whether it's kind of you know linking COVID relief to kind of identity. Um, factors through to just again kind of willing willfully kind of mouthing the right platitudes cancelling dr seuss yeah. which wound up a lot of american cable <laughs> news hosts you know the idea of him doing that is absolutely crazy, bizarre yeah. but it's it just demonstrates i think that a core part of um his legitimacy is based on kowtowing to that ideology because particularly over the course of the, of the four years preceding it that really more so than it had done previously, cemented itself as a key part of like American liberal elite ideology. And he, he obviously recognises that somewhere beneath mm. the fog. One development that seems to have come from that is the rise of this disinformation governance board, which just three weeks after its launch has now been paused, um, which sounds like a good thing, obviously. Um, there has become this obsession with disinformation, particularly among liberals. They seem to blame disinformation as the only reason as to why people don't support their policies or as to why they might not win elections. And it seems to be the only thing that was fueling the spread of COVID or climate change or whatever. I mean, what do you make of, first of all, the the whole idea behind sort of tackling disinformation? What's your take on that? Well, the, the whole idea of disinformation is just a nicer way of talking about baskets of deplorables it really is just a nicer way of and a, and a sort of more guarded way of saying there are this there is this ignorant mass out there who the reason why they won't vote for us won't listen to us is because they're ignorant and white trash kind of scum basically um and so rather than say they're white trash and scum and thick what we'll say is that they're disinformed misinformed and they just need a helping hand but it's the same underlying um disregard for people's independence disregard for people's intellect and just sort of myopic arrogance about politics that the only the only possible reason why people wouldn't be screaming biden's name from the rooftop mm. is because they just don't get why he's so great they're disinformed about it um, but, you know, the, the of course, it's a bit like, again, the kind of figurehead point. You have this big statement about a disinformation unit that how what great it's going to do. And of course, then it doesn't take very long for anyone to point out that it has to be toothless or it's going to be toothless. Yeah. Because any kind of, you know, of the powers it wanted to have or any kind of the actions it wanted to take would completely fly in the face of the First Amendment, which... Thankfully, most Americans on either side of the um, of the political divide, Republican or Democrat, still hold dear. So there is this sort of there is this sense in which what all this is doing is kind of messaging about uh, you know a desire. It, it's kind of a wink and a nudge, I think, to those within the Democrat part, Democratic Party, saying, "Look." We kind of know what's going on here. This is the kind of way in which we'll get those nervous um, Clinton and Biden fans who really are terrified about the prospect of a Trump rerun or anything like that to say we're doing the right, you know, we, we're on message. We're doing the right kind of thing because it's not about giving people better access to news or, you know, more information in any way that you could say is positive. It's about narrowing the kind of information that they can get so that it's the right kind. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously the, the US government is not allowed to censor anything directly, but I think this this would have had an effect in terms of the way it worked by essentially defining what counts as disinformation mm -hmm. and then you would have, you know, social media acting on that. Would defer to it, yeah. They would defer to that mm. or you'd have various, you know, it would build upon the work of various charities and NGOs who tell us what what disinformation is. And, and, and so there would have been a, a horrendous chilling effect. But, you know, at the end of the day, no one can really agree on what disinformation mm. means, or certainly you can't agree on it um, in a kind of cross-party basis, because it does seem to just be a partisan thing, right? Well, certainly in relation to the Democrats at the moment, definitely. I mean, it's become, in one sense, the means through which that they explain and understand the fact that um, large sections of the American population abandoned them the 2016 election. It's become the all-purpose explanation mm. as to why that happened, based very much on this fear and loathing of the electorate. And then the war on disinformation, such as it is, is a quite clear attempt to kind of reassert some sort of moral authority control over the narrative yeah. and some species of censorship. Now, obviously, this disinformation governance board would have been toothless, as you say, although there would be this particular chilling effect. But it demonstrates quite an alarming direction of travel. I mean, mm. that board, I think, was set up a couple of weeks afterwards. You had a couple of interventions, one from Barack Obama at Stat in a speech at Stanford where he talks about the scourge of disinformation, uh, the need for more content moderation on social media platforms, and that if they're not going to do it themselves, there should be some structure. He referred to it quite vaguely as a kind of regulatory structure or whatever in order to bring that about. You had Hillary Clinton praising the EU to the hilt for their um, digital services act which as part of it wants to tackle misinformation as well and there's also a large section of the democratic base which is pretty pro censorship yeah. at this point if you look at polls and all the rest of it now obviously it's very difficult to get rid of the first amendment but you see the direction of travel and you see the way things are going culturally and as you were pointing out it would have a chilling effect anyway but it shows the you know the direction of travel at least but nina jankovic who was the woman who was appointed to head this disinformation governance board um, is a kind of self-styled expert. I mean, I don't know where you go to gain your doctorate in challenging disinformation. <laughs> She'd written a book um, mm. and she had a TikTok account where she referred to herself as the Mary Poppins of disinformation. Which was atrocious. It's exactly. the worst thing I've ever watched. Disinformation I'm, is atrocious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the lies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've never cringed that hard in, in a while. Um, but she is responsible. <laughs> for spreading, if not disinformation, certainly misinformation. Yeah. That's one thing about the whole misinformation discussion. There's a lot of misinformation <laughs> within it. So she, of course, along with many other of her colleagues in the field, dismissed the Hunter Biden laptop story mm. um, as a Trump campaign product was the way in which yeah. she put it, that it was essentially Kremlin linked and all the rest of that, despite the fact that now, obviously, as we know, um, it's been stood up by other outlets. Um, again, that was another situation in which this expertise has this effect of censorship because you had people like her or you had even US security officials kind of signing open letters denouncing it. And then as a consequence of that, Facebook and Twitter gets involved. Um, it's quite clear cut that this is just a sort of partisan weapon mm. at this point. One of the things that I can't work out and maybe is quite chilling in respect of I don't know if they even realize this is what they're doing yeah. at the moment. There, there is a, a section of society that kind of cultural elite broadly defined who are so convinced that they are right and so convinced that they should rule essentially mm. that any challenge to that they see as de facto wrong and evil and they cannot see past that and this this whole disinformation discussion is definitely a an outgrowth of all of this but we've got to be very very vigilant against it because like a lot of the discussions around hate speech or whatever content moderation the whole disinformation thing it's it's just a the means through which a, a new form of censorship is being ushered through, yeah. really, and for quite partisan reasons.
It's also it's also used in a kind of extremely lazy way because it is primarily it you know of course it's you know the disinformation governance board was a um, Democrat invention in terms of it was Biden is in government but the Republicans also use it as well so you know in the wake of the shooting that's just happened this week in America Ted Senator Ted Cruz was all, all over the news and being interviewed and anytime someone wanted to bring up the question of gun law and whether or not to repeal it he would just sort of say you know this is disinformation. And and it's just used as a kind of deflection. It's like you know, both sides use any, it. Any form of censorship can be used by both sides. Yeah, right? I mean, but it's know. and and so then it, it you know it, it is inherently uh, partisan because if you actually wanted to look at things that have been have misinformed or have been it, you know p- published in the wrong way, we covered on this podcast a number of months ago the fact that all this information had come out about the uh, Capitol Hill riots mm. and how that had been, the public had been genuinely misinformed by some quite reputable, formerly reputable news sources. But you know, go- gov- US government hasn't kind of made a real effort to put that right, to kind of re-inform people in the right way, because obviously that wouldn't serve any of the purposes around the narrative about Republicans and the Trump effect and all the rest of it. So it there is, you know, you would be very hard pressed to find anyone who was poli- not politically biased. And the whole point is, that's fine. Yeah. That's why you don't go down the disinformation line. You just say that people are going to spin, people are going to tell you what they think and give their opinion. It's on you to figure out what you think and what the truth is, along with some help of some reputable sources, you would hope. But that that involves trusting a public to make decisions, which is quite clear the Democrat Party has no belief in. Spiked is launching an internship program. We are offering paid placements to aspiring writers, podcasters, and video makers who want to cut their teeth at the world's best political magazine. You'll work with us for six months, full-time, in London, starting from July, and there's the possibility of more work at the end of it. You can apply for an editorial internship where you'll help us to produce our articles, features, and essays, or an audiovisual internship where you'll help us to produce our podcasts and videos like this one. To find out more and to apply, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash interns. That's spiked-online.com forward slash interns. Good luck. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. The key question of the moment is, can babies be racist? Uh, The Labour-run Islington Council has put out a poster suggesting that babies as young as just three months old um, can be racially biased and you're never too young to start talking about race. Ella, what have you made of this? Well, of course, yeah, you're never too young to have a conversation with a baby. I mean, how many conversations <laughs> with babies have you had? Is, the funniest thing about this suggestion is that, you know, there was this, that one of the central points was that the idea that babies gravitate towards people who look like their carers and and, you know therefore you know as a white woman when I become a mother my baby will only also like 
presumably other white women with red hair. And that then makes my baby racist because my baby doesn't want to be held by, you know, a, a tall black man or a very short, you know, a, you know, someone who doesn't look like me. It's a completely ridiculous understanding of child development. I hope that there are child psychologists out there writing papers denouncing this as we speak because it's so incredibly unscientific. Um, it's also unsurprising that this crap comes out of Islington, which is, you know, not to sort of be prejudiced, but... There's a lot of people in Islington Council who have got very little to do other than come up with this kind of woke crap, basically. But the idea is, you know, rather than all the all the challenges that parents face, you know, you know, keeping staying awake while raising a baby, trying to keep it fed, trying to get it into a good school, you know, particularly in London, there's lots of challenges that you face. The idea that then you would also have to take on this kind of societal burden of fixing infant racism, yeah. the myth of infant racism, is also just absolutely absurd. I don't know what the outcome is supposed to be of this, that we're all meant to buy books like Anti-Racist Baby, or I actually saw one in Church Street Bookshop the other day um, called My First Feminist Book, which, you know, it sounds <laughs> scintillating for, you know, the, Never too early the three to month that old stuff, yeah. who's going to be able to differentiate, you know, between the fluffy picture of the pink dress and the blue toy. It's just so ridiculous. What can you say? Well, it sounds like it's time to decolonize your parenting skills. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, what have you made of this? I mean, and the fact that it's not a one-off as well, the fact it, that, these, that, you know, this idea is out there. Um, one of the other funny aspects of the um, poster was that it said racism probably peaks around the age of eight or nine, which I'm fascinated that by. Possibly me. I know yeah. oh, you're right. It's not a one-off. There's been other councils in the UK that've been caught out with using a particular service or company which would commit them to decolonizing the nursery. Mm. It's a quote. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's also <laughs> there's also been discussion in America. You know, I think um, there was a story or a bit of research that came out from there a year or so ago that we wrote about, which again was making this point about babies being racist. I mean, it's fascinating as far as it completely inverts that kind of old line that old understanding which is that you know kids innocence you know yeah. they don't see these differences within one another and all the rest of it but in a world in which everything is racialized even the children are racist it's a good example actually it's a stupid story as it is of the way in which sort of woke racism if you want to call it that um, and how it relates to kind of old-fashioned racism how old-fashioned racism would make race a kind of biologically determined kind of idea mm. this fiction of the idea that we're fundamentally different mm. that we're almost different subspecies and all the rest of it uh but you're fated by that it yeah. has certain characteristics and makes some inferior some um superior and all the rest of it this sort of woke racism this woke racialism that we have is that takes race and makes it very socially deterministic right it's the sort of thing where if you're black then your whole experience in life is defined and dragged down by the nature of the fact that you experience racism on the in terms of white kids or white people, it's the idea that you have this inherent privilege, you mm. imbibe these um, attitudes. Um, and I think what you see when you're having a conversation about whether babies are racist is that this is kind of, they're treating this as, as kind of congenital almost. Yeah. Now they're talking about race, they're talking about racism rather than race, but it has a very similar byproduct, which is to racialize society, which yeah. is to introduce, again, this ultimate fiction as a meaningful category in our lives, in our society, and to essentially preach that way of thinking to even the youngest children. And I think the way in which anti-racism and critical race theory, whatever label that you want to give it these days, its particular obsession with children is, in, is probably the most damaging thing about it, mm. you know, insofar as because of the fact that young people today are growing up in societies that are even more tolerant than previous generations and we've made a lot of progress, 
given the fact that children, you know, naturally do not have these hang-ups in yeah. the way that um, some adults might. Um, it's essentially teaching them out of that. Yeah. And that's a real shame and really quite sinister it, it, as well. It treats racism as natural. Yeah. And yes. natural state of affairs. As a, natu yeah. as a natural state of affairs that we have to get rid of rather than seeing it as a kind of product of a broken society or, you know, social relations or anything like that. It's which which the complete opposite of And what's, what is the outcome of that? Because if, if it is true, if you take this logic, that children are lit literally leave the womb with a some kind of innate in the same way that they sort of innately know how to breathe and chew that they learn how to chew that they can differentiate between different races and have some kind of a preference that you know what is the hope in ever overcoming that you know there is the whole idea of the power of genuine anti-racist politics is to say that this is not as you say a natural state it's something that's learned that's picked up and it's an opinion that you can then change that's why we have moved particularly in a country like britain from you know 50 60 years ago a situation in which racism was rife and very normalized to today when it is you know even though it still exists in you know significant places it is not normalized it is generally seen as wrong it's a social norm to to be anti-racist and that hasn't happened because of evolution yeah. because we've sort of grown an anti-racist body in alongside our fibula or something but a uh, bone but because we have changed society's norms and values mm. we've changed our minds and if you give up on that idea that it is this environmental thing this social thing that is you know determined by our own will rather than by something innate whether it's god or nature or something else then you may as well give up because just as you know i was about to say just as much we can't change parts of our identity that's a whole nother different <laughs> political battle but just as we can't there are certain things we have to accept we can't change about ourselves there are also so many things that we can change and this is one of them and if you give just purely on the basis that if you really believe that tiny lovely innocent babies have something as heinous as racism within them then you shouldn't be put anywhere near children because you're a sick sick person <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Spike Podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.